Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. Hi, I'm Kim. Um, We have two readings tonight. The first is from the Old Testament. So it's the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, from verses 1 to 17. I'll give you a moment um, to bring it up on your devices or your Bible, or you can follow along on the screen. Jeremiah, chapter 32, from verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was imprisoned in the guards' courtyard in the palace of the king of Judah. King Zedekiah of Judah had imprisoned him, saying, "'Why are you prophesying as you do?' You say, this is what the Lord says. Look, I'm about to hand this city over to Babylon's king, and he will capture it. King Zedekiah of Judah will not escape from the Chaldeans. Indeed, he will certainly be handed over to Babylon's king. They will speak face to face and meet eye to eye. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will stay until I attend to him. This is the Lord's declaration. For you will fight the Chaldeans, but you will not succeed. Jeremiah replied, The word of the Lord came to me. Watch, Hanamel, the son of your uncle Shalom, is coming to you to say, Buy my field in Anathoth for for yourself, for you own the right of redemption to buy it. Then as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to the guard's courtyard and urged me, Please buy my field in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for you own the right of inheritance and redemption. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field in Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel, and I weighed out the silver to him, 17 shekels of silver. I recorded it on a scroll, sealed it, called called in witnesses, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the purchase agreement, the sealed copy with its terms and conditions, an open copy, and gave the purchase agreement to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Messiah. I did this in the sight of my cousin, Hanamel, the witnesses who had signed the purchase agreement, and all the Judeans sitting in the guards' courtyard. I charged Baruch in their sight. This is what the Lord of Armies, the God of Israel, says, take these scrolls, this purchase agreement with the sealed copy and this open copy and put them in an earthen storage jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord of Armies, the God of Israel, says, Houses, fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I had given the purchase agreement to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, You yourself made the heavens and earth by your great power with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. And our second reading is from the New Testament. And it's Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. So Matthew chapter 7, 7 to 12. 
Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks for him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Well, hello, every person. It is uh, great to see you all here tonight. I've been away on leave for the last few weeks and uh, visited other churches, and that was good, but uh, there's nothing like being home. So uh, it's great to see you all. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are uh, grateful for each other and we are grateful for your word. And Father, we do pray that you would help us now as we come to look at these two passages, uh, that you'd help us to understand what your word has to say to us. And Father, more than that, not just that we would understand, but that through it, we would know more about who you are. And Father, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, there were lots of things that I used to believe were true and they shaped the way that I lived, but I now know they were never true. We all have things that we perhaps used to think, used to believe, but we now believe something else instead. When I was a kid, I used to think that if you swallowed a watermelon seed whole, that a whole watermelon would grow inside you. When I was a kid, I used to think that uh, the adult-sized Mickey Mouse at, you know, Disney World was the actual, real Mickey Mouse. When I was a kid, I used to think that my grandparents lived in a world that was black and white because <laughs> they hadn't invented colour yet and they only invented colour in like the 1960s or so. I used to think that, uh, in, that the plug hole in the bath, I could get sucked down it if I wasn't careful enough. When I was a kid, I used to think that teachers lived and slept at school. I used to think that chocolate milk came from brown cows. I used to think that adults had life pretty much under control and sorted out. <laughs> I believed these things and it shaped the way that I lived. It meant that I spat out all my watermelon seeds. It meant that I stayed away from the plug hole in the bath. It meant that I looked forward to being a, being a grown up and how easy life would be then. When I was a kid, I used to think that God was not good. I knew he was real but I used to think that he was, that he tried to make people's lives hard. He tried to make people's lives difficult. I thought that he was not good and that he was not to be trusted. But now I still think God is real, but I have changed my mind as to what he's like. Now I know that he's good. 
and I now know what he's like and I now think very different things about him and it shapes the way that I live my life. Today, like we said, we are going to start our series, kind of like a mini series on the Apostles' Creed. The plan is that every now and then we'll jump back into it and we'll look at a few more lines of the creed. And in one sense, this is a series about what is it that, what are some of the central things that Christians think? What do we think about who God is and what he's like? What do we think about who Jesus is and what he did? What do we think about who the spirit is and what are some of the things that he does? And today, tonight, we're going to start at the start of this creed and we're going to start with God himself. And when we're talking about who God is and what he's like, the creed only has a few, a few things to say about that. You know, you could say thousands of things about what God is like and who he is, but the creed just says a few things. And so we're going to do the same thing. We're just going to say a few things about who he is and what he's like. Today, we're going to think some, some pretty big thoughts. Today, we're looking at the first line of the creed and we're going to see three things. Number one, God is Trinity. Number two, he is Father. And number three, he is Almighty. And then next week at eight and at five here, we'll look at uh, God as creator. And we're going to see not just what those things are, not just what it says, but also a little bit about how that shapes our lives and how it shapes how we live and how it maybe impacts what's important in life. And if you're here, Asavo, and maybe you've only put your trust in Jesus recently, or perhaps you're still working out whether you think he's a person who can be trusted or whether you're not even sure that God exists in the first place. Whoever you are, whatever you think, the point is what we're going to be doing is we're going to see a little bit about what, what does the world look like, you know, from the inside of a Christian's view. That's sort of what's going to happen. Now, before we get too far, let's just clarify what we're talking about. The Apostles' Creed, as far as we know, wasn't written by the Apostles. Now, you might ask, what's an Apostle? An Apostle, capital A, Apostle, is a title that we use for those that Jesus specifically chose to be his eyewitnesses. That's an Apostle, like Peter, James, John, Paul, those kind of guys. They're the apostles. And so it's called the Apostles' Creed, not because they wrote it, but because it says the kind of things that they said. This creed, the words that we use, has existed for at least a thousand years, maybe 1,500 years. It's, a, it's an extension, an expansion, a variant on an even older creed called the Old Roman Creed, which was around in about the 100s AD, right? So the words are super old and they've been said by <laughs> lots of people across the world, across history. So it's old. The way to think about a creed and what it is, 
is it has these like phrases or these sentences like God, the Father Almighty, or that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And you might think to yourself, what does that phrase mean? What is that? And the answer is the Bible explains it. And so so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this creed kind of line by line, phrase by phrase, and we're going to ask, what does it mean? And then we're going to go to the Bible to find the answers. And that's the way that it works. It goes in that kind of direction. Now, just one more thing before we really jump in. Before, when we said that creed, when Tim helped us, led us, we said a line about um, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And some people get a bit wobbly when we kind of say that because it's like, but we're, we're Anglicans, aren't we? What, what, what's happening? Are we now part of the Roman Catholic Church? What, what does that mean? And you are right. We are an Anglican church. We're not a Catholic church. And at some point, we're going to come back to that line and explain a bit more what it means. But just for now, just very briefly, there's a difference between the word Catholic and Roman Catholic. Those two are not the same thing. The the Roman Catholic Church is a very different flavor of church to us. We are not a Roman Catholic Church. We love Roman Catholic people, but I wouldn't want you to become a Roman Catholic person. The word Catholic means true or authentic or whole or complete, words like that. And so we say that we believe in the one true, authentic, whole people of God that Jesus is drawing to himself by the Spirit. That's what we mean when we say that line. So having said all that, let's jump into the creed. We're going to be in Jeremiah and Matthew a little bit later on, so keep those handy. Like I said, we're going to do some, some, we're going to think some big thoughts. We're going to start here. The first thing to see from the creed is that the creed is what we call Trinitarian. It's structured around the Trinity. So we say, I believe in God, the father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And we say, we believe in the Holy Spirit, father, son, spirit. In the Bible, it's clear there is only one God. There's not many gods. There's not two gods. There's not three gods. There's one God. The Bible then also says things like, it'll say that all who call on the name of the Lord God will be saved. Then it'll say elsewhere, those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. It'll say things like when Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus, he calls him my Lord and my God. And Jesus does not rebuke him for that. Jesus is the word, the word made flesh. And the word was with God in the very start. The word was with God and the word was God. It says that Jesus 
he says that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. I and the Father are one, he says. He says things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says that people should be baptised in the name, not the names, but the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Singular. And so you have all this stuff, right? One God, Jesus, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All these pieces. And the question is, how do they all go together? How do they, in what way are all of those things true at the same time? How does, how does all of that work? So you've got the Father is God. Jesus is God. The Father is not Jesus. And there's only one God. In what way is all of that true? What is underneath all of that that holds it all in place? And the answer is, this is what we call the Trinity. Our God is three persons and one God, one substance. Each person is fully God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. But they're not three gods. And it's not like the Father is a third of God and Jesus is a third of God. And that's not how it works. They are distinct, but they're not separate. They're not three separate gods. There is one God, one God who eternally exists in three persons. That's the Trinity. This is who our God is. And he is totally unique, right? There is Nothing and no one like him in the rest of creation. He is alone like that. And, and it's, it's kind of hard to get your head around, just to kind of think all of those thoughts. It's hard to kind of grab hold of it. But I think that makes sense, right? You would expect that the infinite God might be somewhat challenging to fully grasp hold of. Don't you think that makes sense? If God is real and he's God and he's infinite, it makes sense that he's slightly hard to comprehend. He is Trinity. He's three persons, one God. And the persons are distinct. The Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father and so on. Now, why is this important to know? Why, is this, why does it matter to think these kind of thoughts? Why is the shape of the creed like this? The creed could have been any shape. Why did they make it Trinitarian? There's lots of reasons, but to me, there's two that I think are big that I want to just briefly talk about. The first reason why this is important is because this is how God has revealed himself to us. And if we want to meet and get to know the God who is, the God as he really is, not just the God that we invent, then this is who he is, right? Our job is not to make up what we think God is like or should be like or to make it simple. Our job is to meet the God who is, the way that he has revealed himself in the Bible and in Jesus. And he thinks it's important to know this, this is who he is. The Trinity can, it can be a bit confusing, hard to 
understand, hard to make sense of it. But if, if you get rid of it, right, if we just chose to be like, you know what, it's too hard, let's just get rid of that. If we did that, then everything else about Christianity would stop making sense. The cross would not make sense. Who Jesus is would not make sense. Forgiveness of sins would not make sense. All of it would just cease to make sense. And so the Trinity is, is hard, but when we leave it in there, then it helps everything else to make sense about how Christianity works. For example, right, have you ever wondered if Jesus is God, then when he prays, who is he talking to? Because he's, he's God. So is it when he prays, he's just talking to himself? I used to think about this all the time. What is going on? And the answer is the Trinity. He's not just talking to himself. He is the son talking with the father, like he has always done since eternity, right? Before anything was created, the son talked with the father and the father talked with the son. And that's how it's been forever. So when Jesus prays, it's an inner Trinitarian conversation that's happening. He's not talking to himself. He's talking to the father. And so, so when you have things like the Trinity, other things start to make sense. So the first reason why this matters is because this is who God is. And if we want to know him as he is, not just as we imagine him to be, then this is who he is, number one. Number two, the reason why this is important is because what this means is that it means that relationships are at the center of the universe. The center of the universe is other person-centered relationships. Like I said, before anything existed, before God had created anything or anyone in eternity, the father loved the son and served him. The son loved the father and served him. The father loved the spirit and served him and so on. They're all in perfect relationship with each other and they have been since forever, before anything existed, before the creation of the world, which means that relationships are ultimate. Relationships are the most real thing that exists. Reality is built on other person-centered relationships. We often think that, you know, like this is real, and like, this is real, but our relationships are less real. But that's not true. Our relationships are the most real thing in the universe, realer than this. Other person's centeredness is who God is. The heart of the universe is sacrificial love. So the Trinity is a big deal. The heart of reality is relationships. You are at your most human. You are at your most, there, you are never more youer than you than when you are in relationships where you serve others, God and other people. That is you at your most you. 
So the first thing that we've seen from this creed is that the creed is Trinitarian, Father, Son, Spirit. They are distinct, but they're not separate. They're not three separate gods. They're one God, one God who exists eternally in three persons. And that, that then means that relationships are at the heart of the universe. They are the most real thing that exists. That's the first thing. The second thing is that God is almighty, right? God, the father almighty. So this is where we come to Jeremiah chapter 32. You might've thought this was an odd reading when it was read out. Maybe you felt odd reading it. it Jeremiah chapter 32. Here's what's going on. Jerusalem is under siege. The armies of the foreign power, Babylon, have come and they're going to conquer Jerusalem. Because for hundreds and hundreds of years, Jerusalem has been ignoring God and have turned their back on him, rejected him, and have been worshipping idols. And God had been warning them and warning them and they turned their backs on him. He sent Jeremiah the prophet to tell the king that this was coming, this conquering was going to come. And the king got really mad. He's like, Jeremiah, you always bring me bad news. And so he locked him in prison in the castle. But there was hope. This, this wouldn't be forever. Babylon was going to come, going to conquer them, take them all away as exiles into a foreign country. But God would bring them back one day. And as a symbol of that hope, God told Jeremiah to buy a block of land, which feels a bit odd, but it makes sense. Imagine if New Zealand were conquering us, the mighty power of New Zealand. And they were, they were conquering us and they were like taking our houses and they were capturing us and sending us back to New Zealand as slaves in a Lord of the Rings memorabilia tourist park. <laughs> and we were all there working as slaves and they'd taken all of our houses and, and sheep were living in them and, and they'd conquered us. That's not the best time to put your house on the market, right? Because it's, they're coming to conquer and take it away. But Babylon is at the gate and Jeremiah buys a block of land because he knows this is temporary. God will reverse this and will come back into our houses and into our land and God can do it. He is able, he can do anything and he will do this. And so you can see the whole thing kind of crunched in from verse 13. Jeremiah 32 from verse 13 says, I charge Baruch in their sight. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, take these scrolls, this purchase agreement with the sealed copy and this open copy, put them in an earthen storage jar so they will last a long time. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, houses, fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I had 
given the purchase agreement to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. God is almighty. He is all powerful. He can do all things. Nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing is too challenging for him. He's almighty. Which then connects to the third piece from this line of the creed. He is God, the Father almighty. Now, we've already seen that when the creed calls God Father, it mainly has in mind that he is the Father of the Son, the Lord Jesus. But Jesus himself opens up that unique relationship and invites us into it. And so he teaches us to call God our Heavenly Father. Now, when we call God Father, for some of us, this is, this is a great thing. We've, it, it conjures up good vibes. We've got a great relationship with our dad. Our dad was good, imperfect, like everybody is. But, but for some of us, we got a glimpse of how God loves us in the way that our dads treated us. And, and what a great thing. If that's you, what a great thing. For others of us, maybe your dad was very imperfect. Maybe he was particularly harsh or particularly cold, or perhaps you never really knew him. Maybe he'd walked out on you and abandoned you, you know, a long time before you could know him. Or perhaps you did know him and, and you kind of wish that you didn't, that Maybe he terrified you. I mean, families often have a special skill at being able to traumatize people. That's for sure. And so maybe when God is called father, it doesn't particularly fill you with feelings of joy and comfort. And then when you combine father with almighty, that is the worst possible combo that you could imagine, right? If your father was very ordinary, but at least he was limited. Imagine if he was very ordinary and all powerful. That is the worst thing you could imagine. So yeah, some fathers are better than others, but regardless of what your dad was actually like, you have an idea of what a good father is supposed to be like, right? If your dad really kind of sucked, you, you know what he was supposed to be like. You know what he should have been like. And God is a father like that. He's everything that a father is supposed to be. He's a father who is good at every level and in every way and in every circumstance, he's good. And so we know what a good father is supposed to be like. And again, the fact that God is father, there's lots that we could say about that. 
But I just want to point out one thing that it means. If God is Father, if He is your Almighty Father, then it means that you should ask Him for good things. Come to Matthew chapter 7. We had this read out earlier. Matthew 7, and we'll pick it up in verse 9. 7 verse 9. Jesus says, Who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Isn't it striking that Jesus' summary thought when he's describing me and you and us in verse 11, the baseline, he just assumes and describes us as evil. Isn't that striking? Like people do good things, but are we basically good or are we basically evil? Well, Jesus is just so casual and almost offhanded and says, we're evil. But he says, but your father in heaven, who is not evil in any way, how much more will he give good things to those who ask him? God is a father who loves to give good things to his children. And so Jesus says, ask him. That was a long time ago when uh, Nick's, my wife, I was banned from doing the kind of grocery shopping. I, I, I wasn't allowed unless I had appropriate supervision because I would buy food that we didn't need to buy. Like once I bought $25 worth of cheese that was going to go off tomorrow. And so I got banned. But uh, the ban was lifted. And uh, when the kids were young, I used to take them with me. They were like maybe four or five and we would shop. Sometimes they'd walk next to me. Sometimes they'd walk in front of me and we'd shop and we'd walk around the aisles and they would just grab stuff. They couldn't read. They'd just grab things off the shelves. Do we need this one, daddy? Should we get that one? Here's one. Take this one. And they'll just give me stuff and bring it. And I'd be like, no, we don't want those ones. No, please put those ones back. Oh, that's glass. I'll take that. that oh, I'll be careful with that one. Oh, that one's poison. That'll kill you. I'll take that. Be careful. And we'd put them all back on the shelves. And I used to love it. I loved it because it showed me their little hearts that they wanted to help and they wanted to be with me and they wanted to do it with me. And they knew that I was the one who called the shots on where we went and what we got and what we did and what we didn't do and what we didn't get. And, and I knew, right, I understood they were just little and they often did not understand. And that's a bit of a picture of what it's like of you and God in prayer. I'm like, God, I'd like this, and can we have that? And I'm thinking we should do this, and what do you think about that? And I'd like this. And he's like, nobody, that, you don't want that one. I'll take that one. That one's no good. That one will kill you. And, and he understands, right? He's a father, and I'm his child. And he doesn't keep things from me 
because they're good things and he's a jerk. He keeps them from me because he's good and these things are not good for me. And he gets it. I'm little and I often do not understand. And imagine if your father in heaven, who is always good in every way and wants to give you good things, imagine if he is all mighty, all powerful, if nothing is too difficult for him. He wants us to ask him for things. We've thought of a lot of big thoughts tonight. God is triune, his trinity, one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons why that's so important is because it tells us that the deepest part of reality is relationships. Relationships are the most real thing there is. You are at your most human you are never more youer than when you are in relationships where you serve others. Here at church and with the people that you live with and the people at work that you work with and work for, this is who God is. And this is how Christians view the world. And as well as that, God is Father. He is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ and in him and because of him, he's our heavenly father too. And he's a father who is good, totally good, absolutely good in every way, good. And he is all mighty, all powerful. Nothing is too difficult for him. And he's a father who loves to give good things to those who ask him. And he wants us to ask him and he gets it. We're just little and we often do not understand. But he wants us to ask and he wants to give. This is what God is like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for who you are, that you are a father, a good father. And Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand who you are and what you're like, that we would know it, know that you're good, and that we would trust you and trust that you're good. And Father, we do pray for each one of us in this room that you would not just be a father, that you would not even just be the Father, but that you would be our Father. And Father, we do pray all of this in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen.